Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight through a series of interviews. The founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools, and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Rup Mocker. Rup Mocker is a futurist and urbanist with a focus on social transformations. He has over 20 years of international experience as a strategic level advisor working with central and regional governments, cities, corporations, startups, NGOs, and festivals. Ten years ago, along with Alexei Nuvonen, he established Demos Helsinki as an independent think tank. Before that, Rup worked as a design researcher, technology analyst, publisher, journalist, DJ and promoter. He has studied social sciences and humanities at the London School of Economics and at the universities of Helsinki, Leicester and Bristol. In his spare time, Rup rests, dances and follows his intuition. Rup has written about the future extensively and has been a columnist at Yellows Radio, which is the national public broadcaster of Finland, since 2016. Welcome to FuturePod, Rup. Thank you so much for having me. So, Rup, question one, what is the Rup Mocker story? How did you become a member of the Future and Foresight community? I guess, you know, reflecting from that particular point of view, the Future and Foresight, of you just thinking the big kind of wake up for me was running into kind of punk and hardcore music and the and the community around that that was very much kind of DIY and very much kind of anarchist in terms of its political thinking. So that was yeah. mind blowing for me because it was like something totally different. You know, come, I came from a very simple or typical Finnish middle class uh, background. So the idea that, you know, there would be no rules and there would be no property <laughs> and yet people would be kind of equal and contributing to each other's lives was something like okay, That sounds very different to what I'm used to. And I guess that was the, that was the kind of ignition that started the possibility in thinking that yet yeah, things could be very much uh, different, which, you know, I think is the kind of, you know, the first kind of qualification to become a future thinker, futurist or member of Foresight quality, uh, community. You have to be able to kind of realize that, you know, things, how things are isn't necessarily how things could or should be in the future. So that was the kind of first thing there. Then I got like very interested in uh, subcultures in general and uh, started studying uh, sociology and subcultures. And then uh, this is mid-90s. And then what was happening at that time was that early internet was very kind of entangled to uh, subcultures and how they were forming. So there I got into technology. Uh, I was uh, lucky enough, a friend of mine invited me to become a research assistant first and, and then a researcher at the University of Arts and Design, what's now Aalto, uh, in their media lab uh, in Futures Media Home, 
research group and what was our what we did there was like the future of audio because like the, everything in the internet was kind of visual or textual so we wanted to think that okay so what is the kind of future of auditive communications and and uh, he, the, here is where i first got into some methodologies such as kind of uh, design fiction and writing that type of scenario so that was my first touch into some kind of methodologies uh, after that, I became a quite serious kind of futures forecaster. Uh, I <laughs> moved to London City to work for one of the kind of analyst companies, and we kind of forecasted different markets from from kind of machine to machine communications to what was called wireless internet or mobile games and and these types of things. So this is around two thousands when there was the massive telecoms boom. Uh, around the world so that was my contribution to it and 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 soon there i understood that all these growth curves looked very similar there was like an always the s curve <laughs> so i started thinking that the s curve is probably something that doesn't exist in the world you know in the material world or technological world but rather is something that exists in our way to understand the future yeah and then I understood that, okay, you can't have all these S-curves at the same time. There has to be kind of discontinuity. Some of them are kind of fighting against each other. And there I then bumped into kind of scenarios and then we started doing scenarios as an analyst. And then, of course, that's not, that's not what an analyst should do. We should be kind of, or they should be very strict about like the exact amount of users and no kind of alternative futures. But then moved back to Finland and uh, a friend of mine from studies, uh, Alexi Neuvonen, still one of my best friends, and we founded Demos Helsinki. We thought that, you know, there needs to be like a new way of, of looking into the future. And and, uh, and we thought that there isn't many think tanks that would be future oriented. They were like more kind of policy oriented and kind of yeah. very gradual change oriented, but not kind of starting from the future. Uh, think tanks and there still isn't to, to, to this day mm. but anyhow that's 15 years ago now demos has grown into demos helsinki was the thing that we founded we're now some 50 people um, and kind of worldwide operations in that sense that last year i think we had a project in 35 different countries wow. we have all the offices in uh, paris and, and and helsinki has some 50 people working with us but yeah it's it's a quite of an international operation which i'm yeah happy about now who chose the name i it was actually there was a think tank in uk there still is uh called demos or demos uk and we were we were quite inspired by some of their reports because they they had a quality this is kind of you know around 2000s uh early 2000s they had a quality the demos reports of talking about an idea in a such a way that it was for a human being, not a professional. So it wasn't like a sectoral thinking, but rather it's kind of, okay, this is creative city. So it could have implications for anything. This is pro amps. It could have uh, significance for everything, you know, open source democracy, all these kind of wide uh, and, and quite ambitious uh, idea led reports that they put out. So, so we called them and said that let's do a project together. Uh, and the name kind of stuck, even though we don't have, we, we once did a project with uh, Demos UK, but then <laughs> Demos Helsinki, the name stuck. And, you know, it's people, Demos is people. So it, it's, it's a kind of 
good name in that sense because it it puts certain norms like you know having people at the core of your thinking rather than structures yes it's a curious notion and i'm saying curious it probably isn't but i'm going to say it's curious where you've got 50 or so people working for a futures think tank and i just know that if you get 50 people who think about the future they're not going to think about the future in this a similar way at all how does that how does that play out in an organization how does the contest of ideas play out there's i guess there's like two levels to that one is kind of project to project level yeah. and then it's there you know it's a team forms and kind of an intellectual core and they'll make what they'll make out of the project and that's I guess how it is in each, you know, kind of forest side project. It's a kind of congregation of of certain kinds of minds and bodies that then come up with it. But then, what's more interesting is is perhaps you know the kind of demos Helsinki level, the whole organization that fifty people uh, level. So all those people are members of an association that owns uh, the companies which in which they or, or operate. So you know everyone's a partner. Uh, so and we have no ownership. That means that you know we govern our own work. So everyone governs the organization to an equal degree, depend independent of when they started working at 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 demo. So I have as much kind of uh, formal power as 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 someone who's st- just started working yeah. with us. So so how how we do it there is is that we have this kind of impact hypothesis that we visit. And and we have some people who are like, you know, close to, I would say, almost close to kind of conspiratorial left. And then we have people who are close to kind of traditional conservatism, kind of ideological conservatism. And it's very nice to have these people kind of discussing what should our organization's view of the future be. So, so it becomes a living document. This is it's a kind of a thought piece around which we congregate around two times a year, and and then we discuss that okay, what what is the kind of impact that we want to see in the in the world, and uh, so how do we come? How do we negotiate with that type of tension? Is that we have a living document that we visit, uh, and the living document is about the impact that Demos Helsinki wants to see. In, in, in the world and the method there is discussion and I have to, it was very much easier when we were when we could meet and, and the, you know the 50 people could be in the same office <laughs> and now that it's done online it's very it's very very difficult to have that type of conversations for sure that, that's true I'm having I'm having a vision of a very Socratic dialogue happening Around the trees, and you know when we, you know when you can meet and talk, and the idea of the future being debated and tossed around and played with. Yep, yeah, exactly. And then it's kind of it's good because it's not an echo chamber uh, where because the echo chambers such as that you have people who are like seem to be agreeing on everything is that you don't really get behind the word. So what do you mean by sustainable develop? You know develop for example so what is a just transition so what kind of things are kind of behind these and when you have people from wildly different let's say political or ideological backgrounds even though that's something we it's not something we look for it's something that we're kind of proud to have you get kind of in a good way 
intense discussions. Do you find people or do people find you? We have a very good internship program. So on some level we get, like I, I always uh, joke with my co-founder Alexi that we would never get in as interns to Demos Helsing. <laughs> so, so it's so there's there's some it has become a very kind of wanted place to be. I guess it's a bit different intern work than you get in most. Uh, it's also that we take from all the fields basically. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, that's a, so that has become a very good kind of source of expertise. But then at the same time, we're really struggling with kind of people who would have more experience. As you may know, kind of it's not. You know, you don't have people who have got a lot of expertise in running forest site mm. future studies programs. So it's it's not it's not like you know I don't know programming or <laughs> or or something which which is taught in all the universities around the world. Yeah, well, I mean, you're getting people. I would imagine you're getting people who are early in careers. Yep, and to some extent you would be a young organization which would have advantages and challenges absolutely i think for most of for most of the 50 people this would be the first or the second place where they work permanently mm. you're getting them while they're young and you're changing them forever <laughs> and hopefully we're changing the world together as well because that's the, that's the idea of our organization so we we have a lot of growth targets but they are kind of impact growth targets. Right. Thanks, Ruth. So question two, the one where I encourage the guests to talk about a method, a framework or an approach that they believe is central to their personal practice. So what do you want to talk to the listeners about? I don't have a central thing. My central thing kind of changes all the time. So I'm, I'm in that sense. I've, I've, in terms of methods, I've done them all. But the thing I'm very <laughs> puzzled about right now is how to extend the variety, diversity, almost like the regime of possible worlds, so possible futures, when we go about imagining different kinds of futures because i see that that's where the magic of futures thinking lies and by magic i mean the in in magic in almost kind of real terms in in we see that something we didn't think is possible could be possible we managed to imagine things that have not been imagined yet yet in a such a way that we think that they are possible futures rather than just some kind of figments of fantasy there are some people that are very good at it. There are some methods that bring out the best in people, but it's often in the kind of fine tuning of those methods that make this kind of socio-psychological or, or even physical uh, congregations where people come together to imagine different futures. And I think this is, you know, I, I'll, I'll first explain why I think it's very, very important to be able to extend the realm of possible futures because you know if we think ourselves like a typical way of thinking about the future which is that you know there are some things that are plausible then there's some things that are possible then there's some things that are preferable there are some things that are probable 
and we kind of know that the the probable and the and and the preferable have kind of left each other and they're going almost like further and further away from each other and now what i'm fearing and sensing is and and this is this is that something that i've had plenty of discussions with with colleagues and a lot of people who are in the forest side world seem to be kind of ha- having the same worry that the uh, possible and uh, the preferable futures are almost like leaving. They're going apart. So that if they're <laughs> yeah. kind of circles, they wouldn't have any overlap anymore. So if you think about it, I mean, in terms of kind of futures going. And that gives real problem. So if you cannot think of something that is possible at the same time as it is preferable. So what do you do in that in that sense? I I think my answer to that is that we need, we should be able to extend the kind of circle or the realm or the um, uh, increase the amount and the diversity of the uh, of the possible worlds. So that means we should be able to look into methods of imagination, and particularly I mean kind of imagination in two senses. So to be able to imagine things that are not yet, so in that sense, unimagined. And then the other thing is that we should be able to reimagine things that we didn't think could be reimagined. So what I've been looking into a lot is these kind of different methods through which one can imagine the unimagined in these two, two meanings. And I have found that it's, it's the stuff of imagination is, is, is somewhat like a non-cognitive and, un- and even an anti-intellectual process. And that should be kind of respected as such. And what I mean by that is that, of course, you know, you have to be able to have critical thinking to start with, to be able to see that, okay, these things could be different. But when you go from that, it's almost like a mathematical thing or a physical thing where you start using some of these methods to be able to imagine things that are uh, not yet. We've been taking a lot of different approaches from art, yep. uh, for example, from composition. So you, in, in terms of when you compose, uh, composers normally don't do it like Mozart does in the Amadeus film, that they just write what they hear, but rather they do these things that, you know, can we do inversion, subversion, add-on things, and then they see what that sounds like. So you do these types of things that you, for example, you put something on top of a future that you imagined. You do something like an inversion, which means, well, something like uh, the patient is actually the doctor. And then then you can evaluate that. So you kind of first do these types of things, and then you can sit back and evaluate and see whether this is actually preferable. Where do, what does it? What else does it need around it for it to be plausible? And then, okay. two weeks ago, we did something like extremely experimental in this in in the arts context. So uh, uh, I used to work as a DJ, uh, so I have a lot of kind of experience from club and rave culture, and a lot of friends in there. And so we started experimenting whether the type of altered states of consciousness one produces in dancing ecstatically for hours could be kind of firstly kind of deconstructed so that, you know, you wouldn't need to actually go to an all-night rave to experience something like that. But then also whether that that type of state of consciousness would allow us to think and imagine the unimagined in a different way. 
this was a four four hour uh, workshop happening in the uh, in, uh, in the Museum of uh, Contemporary Arts uh, in Finland, where we did different kind of embodied exercises, almost like active meditation, in entangled with a scenario workshop. I think we got the hypothesis quite right, because what you produce in this kind of rave and dance and you know ecstatic uh, moments is kind of a your ego, if you like. So you're less judgmental towards the ideas that you may have. So you you know you can ideas are kind of more free flowing. Uh, so that's a, that's work in progress. At least we had a really fun time <laughs> doing, <it. laughs> and uh, it's you know it's it's something that we're researching that how we can take that to away from the arts context. Well, certainly. I mean, if you move your body in different ways, you change the circulation of blood. Yep. in your brain and you will have different thoughts so you'll often if you go if you ride a bike or you swim in a pool and do laps you'll often come up with solutions to problems that you hadn't even thought of absolutely because your body effectively is thinking in a different way because we think with all our body not just our brain yep absolutely and if you make that exercise into something a bit more systemic or systematic mm. you can kind of transcend your everyday thoughts you know, it's there's less like you know, kind of physical methods through you, which you can get away from these kind of prevailing ways of thinking about something. Kind of, you almost kind of surrender surrender to the rhythm of doing something, uh, and then you kind of also surrender some of the thoughts that you you may have. Because I'm I'm sure we've all been to kind of futures workshops where people sit down, sit down. They're supposed to have a discussion about some kind of, a, you know, let's say a future world, a scenario, for example, and everyone comes up with what they just read in the newspaper. Yeah, It's either kind of authoritarian leaders that are going to take over, pandemics uh, are going to have, you know, take over, you know, the newest technology, ledger technology, Bitcoin, whatever happens to be like the latest thing they particularly have followed and thought, and then that kind of overwhelms everything and and people are kind of it's a lot in many cases incapable of leaving that one idea <laughs> if you understand yeah i mean it's interesting what you aren't saying this and it caused me to think that if we think of jim data's work on scenario archetypes and how jim from what 30 years of studying images of the future from all around the world found that they sit within four prevailing archetypes. Yep. <laughs> and if you think of futures workshops as being roughly the same workshop that's been run for the last 30 years, then maybe it's not surprising that yep. workshops all around the world have produced the same four archetypes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And then, yeah. And we could already see that, you know, that type of thing when we then had kind of, it was a very typical uh, scenario exercise that we that we ran. It was, you know, for due of this experiment, we wanted to keep everything really simple so we could learn what works and what doesn't and how it may work if it works. And so we had the scenario axis in the floor of a quite huge space in, the, in, in a room that we had been dancing. It was a huge space because we needed to be able to, dance during COVID times, you know, so, yes. but that would gave us also, that gave us also a wonderful way to kind of physically visit another world, uh, another future. So let's go into that 
different parts or different people went there and then they could kind of feel as they went from one end of the axis to other end axis they could do and talk about that in pairs or in groups and and that already uh was a you know something that you know shouldn't could be implemented i think you know everywhere when where one does uh kind of futures work through which you can kind of actually walk from one possible future to another possible future are you going to continue with that kind of inquiry to see what where it goes yeah yeah i mean that that's that's called body talk i do it with two uh dancers that's an arts or kind of an independent arts thing so we're going to develop that but then the whole kind of untitled initiative that we launched it's a festival where arts is at the center of it mm. and art experiments and reimagination and imagination are at the center of it so that's a kind of a larger scale way of thinking that what if arts could provide us with a new way of looking at the world especially help us imagine imagine the unimagined yet the possible future yeah again i'm hearing the the center for post normal policy in London with, um, with Zia Sada, Zia talks about the not now and the not yet. We are between worlds, so to speak. Yeah, and that's that's definitely a sentiment that comes up a lot. And uh, and it was the when we launched Untitled uh, the festival that we or the ten year process uh, that we uh, we started this year. It was kind. It wasn't that much mainstream. There was like the one Gramsci quote that was doing rounds, which is that the old world is dying, but the new one can't be born yet. But then COVID came, and you know everyone seemed to agree that okay, this is a portal. We're going somewhere. There's no return to normal. We don't want to return to normal. It became a mainstream idea that now we are in between of the worlds. And I think what we are now on is kind of. I've been trying to find the right metaphor here a lot, but I don't think it's a portal as such because portal doesn't change you. We are in something which is more of a kind of a trip or a journey uh, on which we all go and and it changes us when we enter the new uh, world or new state of normality, I guess, or, or, or even kind of new state of post-normality. Given as you told the story that it was punk music and the anarchy of punk music that suggested to you that it was possible to effectively move outside of history and the present and create something radically different. Yep. And maybe we're at one of those musical genre changes and we're moving from classical to baroque or baroque to punk. That's a very good metaphor. And what's striking, of course, is that these moves are quite slow you know when you know when history takes like big changes uh it's not like it happens overnight some things with covid happened overnight but then what it essentially just did in my opinion was that it amplified what already is there yeah so covid was like it's they have been kind of nothing but a but a catalyst then uh, or like 99% catalyst and 99% kind of accelerator uh, of what is already already there. So I, I would kind of hasten to put too much meaning on a virus, but to say that kind of the virus is the, what 
helps us to change the genre here or kind of forces us to change mm. the genre because all the I, I guess the all the structures of the old genre become so visible and, and somewhat kind of ugly we see that okay maybe that's not the world we really want here and we should be re uh, imagining and kind of experimenting with with something uh, totally different well maybe the virus has given us permission maybe maybe yeah thanks for it Question three, I think we're at a good segue. The futures that are emerging around Rook, how do you make sense of the emerging futures around you? And also, what are, what's got your attention? What's got you excited? And possibly, what's got you scared? We already covered some of that thinking. But then what gets me excited is that there, like, as long as I remember, there has been this sense that uh, there's going to be some kind of a kind of transformation in the basic institutions that govern our society. And much of this talk started, of course, with internet. And a lot of this thinking then was amplified by the kind of environmental crisis and, 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 and people becoming more conscious of that. But what it seems now like that everyone, it's a mainstream idea that the the basic institutions of the society, be they economic institutions, political institutions, are going to be very different in the next 10 years or so. So it's kind of like now is the transformation, that it's, it's, it is not something of, a, of something that you just read in academic articles or foresight papers. It's not a theoretical thing, but it's something you can actually feel, touch, it, you can discuss and start experimenting around it. And why that is exhilarating is, of course, that you know, for a long time, I have shared among with many the sentiment that you know, our lifestyle is not very sustainable. And, and, and it's not just kind of the sustainability in uh, or the unsustainability of our lifestyle is not just a kind of a technocratic problem, but there are some kind of deeper issues in there than just making for example, the machines that run on fossil, run on, on electricity, or just make like slight changes to the economic systems and everything will be okay. So this is uh, something that interests me a lot in, in, in the, the fact that we are in a transformation and what, how these transformations have taken place previously, how we could do this one in a less violent way Usually these big transformations have been horrible. I mean, either economically horrible or kind of even violent in the history of, of humankind. For example, the Industrial Revolution was horrible for the livelihoods of the, of the people. You know, it actually people who start, went, to the, went to the factories to work were much worse off than the people who had worked uh, in the farm. So it took some 50 years for the Industrial Revolution to start providing some well-being for a larger people of group than just the uh, industrialists themselves. Yeah. You know, I don't need to go into other, some kind of more violent transformations such as revolutions. Needless to say that they haven't been pretty and they have uh, taken a, a generation or so to kind of have the benefits of the transformation to be uh, distributed or or at or even some kind of a peace to arrive after it. 
I mean, you're a sociologist. I mean, you know that when there's fundamental change, what gets concentrated is power in a few hands. Yep. And you create often new power holders. And then what you then describe, of course, is a slow distillation of power and the creation of new institutions to take the really rough edges off the control of power. And, I mean, we are seeing that now, even with technologies like uh, communication technologies, we're seeing power now getting concentrated into fewer and fewer hands. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And it, it's a, it, it is a pattern that whenever there's kind of a moment of transformation, moment of kind of democratization even, a moment of kind of promise of, of, of some kind of more you know, extension of rights, if you like, then there's a bit of panic in terms of, okay, so just, you know, because people's roles and people's relationship change and, you know, those who have may be losing something to those who don't have. So often in, you know, kind of traditional or modern modern societies, what would happen is that usually kind of a military leader says that, okay, no need to worry. I can stop this all. I can make, you know, normal happen again, you know, and but now what we're seeing is not kind of a more a revolution after which a military coup comes, but more a kind of societal holistic transformation after which a kind of technological coup comes. Mm. Uh, so we don't necessarily need like a military to kind of control us and say that you know, <laughs> take it easy, no no need to worry. Revolution is kind of finished, and the bloody side of that is gone. And now you know, the soldiers are here. Now it's more like okay, don't you don't worry, kind of the the crazy times uh, are over and kind of technology can now uh, control us and let it control us. So that's the kind of military coup of, of our transformation, if you like. Is that a future that excites you or a future that scares you? I think it's extremely scary, of course. Uh, but it, then again, it's, it's uh, something that is an exciting one as well, because if we have technologies that can control uh, us, it it could mean that also we could control ourselves. We could uh, mm. technology. So it's, I guess it's a matter of who controls. I would love to be, have more self-control, you know. Uh, that would be amazing to be able to live according to my plans and, and, and values and, and, and so forth. And if there's a technology that would allow me to do that instead of, in, and instead of being used to kind of make me watch ads on, on social media, it would have a, some other kind of a, an impact on me. That would be absolutely amazing. What are you looking for now? I mean, in terms of the futures as they start to emerge, I mean, where really are you paying attention as to what happens next? That's a very, very good question. Well, I'm really interested to see you know, what kind of communities of practice and maybe ideology emerge that say that, you know, as there is no return to normal, try this. Uh, and there hasn't been many of those around, but I'm sure there are more, there, there are some to come. Of course, we have some like QAnon, these type of communities that's, that say that kind of everything is a lie and you can live in a different way. But maybe that isn't the only one. And maybe there could be some that are more based on kind of more based on discussion, debate, openness, science, imagination, experimentation, rather than just kind of a will to believe in something uh, supernatural. One thing that was happening before COVID 
that was intensely interesting to me was I saw the increasing politicization of the young people, particularly around environment. Yeah. But we saw young, but in America we saw this with gun control. We saw young people, you know, certainly 14, 15, 16, taking it up to their powers that be saying, you need to do something. Yeah. The Greta Thunberg starting the protests in Sweden. Well, of course, we had those protests in Melbourne and I'm sure you had them in Helsinki where the school kids would leave school and protest about the climate. Now, it'll be very interesting what happens do the do the children return to the streets again? Yeah. And one would imagine they're not just going to go back to school. Yeah. I think that's a, that is both an interesting and a very positive thing to have. I mean, if you think about the idea of democracy and if you think about how it's being practiced nowadays with kind of in terms of especially in relationship to future we know this that the old people are ruling the world and they will rule the world for a very long time yet they have kind of le- less at stake in terms of mm. the future you know it's like needed kind of the Greta Thunberg to come there and say that look now it's not your future that is at stake here it's my future so mm. so you know what could be the political uh, implications of that and when i said that there's a sense of a real need of reimagining some of our basic institutions such as political institutions democratic institutions one big issue if not the biggest issue is that how can we have those that, that have more at stake more to uh, kind of more at, as a as a more central role uh, in taking the decisions because how we see democracy now is a very kind of mechanistic thing we just think that okay one person one vote that must be democracy whereas that that has nothing to do with democracy that's a a practice that we have taught might uh, somewhat comply to the idea of democracy but it's you know it's a historical practice it, it's worked very well for on certain times but it isn't kind of like if you take that apart like you, you will not find a dna that says that this is democracy what i mean that mm. what i mean that it, that that idea of democracy is something that is you know as dewey said that is is will have different representations in the history and none of them will be perfect uh, so you will never get it's it's almost like a utopian thing that you would get to a full democracy, but you'll have to be looking at this. And now the big issue is that okay, how do how do people who have their whole life at stake or have their whole adult life at stake, especially to do with kind of environmental crises, you know, how do we make sure that they their voice gets heard and not those who will frankly be dead already when climate crisis really starts? Where there've been huge societal changes through things like you know the wars and the previous pl- and the, and the previous spanish flu we also saw the extension of the franchise to women yep again in terms of your futures that aren't here now it's it's not inconceivable that younger people will be able to vote yeah or even that you know there are there would be issues in which young people would have a vote but old people would not have a vote as it is that's right their business so to speak so so if the issue is not 
something that has a direct impact to you or it has less of an impact. So how to bring kind of long-termism into democracy is, a, is going to be a big issue. Now, for two reasons. The other reason is that because if you look at how small of part of the global population young people are, it's it's really, really uneven with people over 60. If people over 60 are like, you know, the big part of the population almost everywhere in the world, maybe outside, I think, Africa primarily, yeah. or, uh, but but everywhere else, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a democracy that is very kind of uneven in terms of age. And then the other reason is, of course, that we have these long-term issues that need to be acted on now. And of course, democracies are not the only possible form of political organization. True. And we are seeing is that authority, you know, kind of these autocracies seem to be performing a lot better on some issues. Uh, so, you know, they find it easier, for example, to take long-termism into, into, into governance. So we have, you know, a lot of these uh, countries, uh, you know, Singapore, for example, is one of the, the leaders in taking forest side and future thinking long-termism into government. Uh, so uh, some, some of the Arab states are uh, doing that in, in the Persian Gulf, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's a lot easier to take the future into account if you don't have to listen to everyone. True. Thanks, Rupe. Fourth question, the communication question. How does Rupe explain what he does to people who don't necessarily understand what it is that Rupe does? (laughs) Well, I usually explain what I'm doing through trying to explain the idea of many possible futures or kind of that there isn't a future, but there are futures. And then I explain that this is something I do. And we who think about the future, I think that we're part of the Foresight community, also have an ethical stand towards the future, which means that we think that it's kind of wrong simply to guess what is the probable future. So we are not here to just kind of make bets, sit back and wait. We think that that's kind of deeply unethical, but we are here to change, uh, to understand, to imagine and to change the future. From that, I usually try and go into experiments. So saying that, so what these two things then imply, the idea that there's many futures, the idea that uh, we shouldn't just be betting on the right future, that goes into that, okay, as we don't know, we have to find out by experimenting. So what our organization, Demos Helsinki, essentially does is three things. We, we do research, so we produce knowledge. Uh, we do experiments, which is that we produce knowledge and experience, experiment, experience in that way. Uh, and we also produce imagination. So we extend the realm of possible futures. And these three work in hand. So... It's a research, consulting, and imagination organization in this kind of more boring terms described uh, Demos Helsinki. Thank you. So, last question. Do you want to tell the listeners about Untitled? 
Yeah. So uh, Untitled is a 10-year process of uh, refusing to go back to normal, imagining the unimagined and experimenting together. So um, a couple of years ago, we at Demos Helsinki got together and kind of had an existential crisis because we had had like incredible growth. So all our numbers were through the roof, uh, over the targets. You know, we had the way we calculated impact, it had gone many folds in a couple of years. And at the same time, like we knew that the world was not going to a better direction. This was like this was the emergence of climate crisis. This was when we had started having more of the authoritarian leaders. You know, this is when when things started looking really bad. So we understood that we need to kind of step out from project work uh, and start doing something kind of radically different. And that radically different is that we have now co- uh, compiled some twenty organizations that are activist organizations that have special relationship to future uh, in that sense that they see that future is of their making. They refuse to go back to normal and they want to imagine an experiment with the unimagined and unexperimented yet with. So it started this year. It centers around a festival where imagination and arts are at the center this is quite a year to start an international festival. <laughs> <laughs> Not very foresightful. No, no. Like, yeah, we, we, we launched three weeks before the pandemic was announced. And uh, <laughs> it's been a hell of a ride. Um, so many redesigns uh, that one wouldn't believe that, you know, some, at some point it was just like, okay, whatever, let's redesign again. But, you know, what we were really kind of one could say lucky with is that this idea that we don't want to go back to normal, that there is some transformation at hand, that we are going to the unimagined, became commonplace. You know, we thought that this is going to be a mission. We're going to have to, we're going to be able to spell the world that there is a, there is a transformation going on. And now there is like no need for that. It's kind of, you know, your financial times writes about it and, 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 and so forth. You know, you could, it couldn't be a more of a mainstream idea that there is no going back to. The first year is like the first festival is now finally gone uh, or behind us. We had it around a month ago. We had uh, some 400 people online, some 60 different sessions. So we had conversations, we had experiment planning workshops, uh, and then we have arts and imagination sessions and it's kind of all invitation only the founders the founding organizations can invite people and uh it's and the conversations are like you know they were like real conversations so not panels they were not public or anything like that experimentation workshop we had around 10 different experiments initiated in those from different kind of accelerator program for entrepreneurs changing capitalism to kind of these a new nation state kind of formation uh, or kind of a, a formation that could replace nation states these kind of nodes one one can join in in different cities to something as concrete as as, as building a house like a housing uh, association uh, that also gives you kind of access to nature to sustainable lifestyles as well as to income we had a very diverse background of these founders, so from housing associations to venture capitalists to think tanks and and, and universities. Uh, so it's a very nice 
an unlikely uh, alliance setting up these these uh, experiments together. And next year we'll see whether we're going to have a face-to-face uh, festival, uh, probably only limited as such, but I'm sure at some point we'll get to kind of proper festival setting as well. But it, you know, one way I think about it is a 10-year process. Another way I think about it is a kind of annual festival of uh, imagination and experimentation. It's too early. And again, you've called it untitled. So obviously you don't wish to name it something for the simple reason it hasn't got a name and shouldn't have a name because it's only the first year. Are there some criteria that, or some sort of guiding ethical purpose to it? Yes. Other than, other than just we need to imagine something different? Yeah. Well, we started from a kind of just joyful and sustainable transformation. That is, and that's a quite good starting point in my opinion. Just means that, you know, we should be able to land into something that is more just than our current system. Sustainable there uh, refers mostly to environmental sustainability and joyful to the idea that, you know, this this transformation and the route to there are uh, essentially the same thing. So it isn't that we'll start when we get there. It isn't like, you know, Lenin famously didn't listen to music before the revolution was finished. And, and, and that this was this is something that we want to do something in a totally different way, kind of like anti-Lenin in that type of thing. And and this is and of course we understand what happened to the to the Russian Revolution that it became a dictatorship and maybe it became mm. a dictatorship because it was done the wrong way. So it was done in a such a way that you know Lenin thought that then they are going to disperse power when they'll finally get there, and then they're going to have arts and music incorporated when they'll finally uh, finally get there. So this is what the joyful gear refers to. But then uh, this was just, this was just a kind of the, the starting point for it. And now we've managed to look at it in such a way that uh, when we talk about transformation, we're not just looking at sectoral transformation. So not just kind of what is what happens after kind of crisis of democracy or what happens after fourth industrial revolution or what happens after post-capitalism or you know which are essentially kind of names for sectoral transformations economy is going to change somewhat uh, political system is going to change somewhat technological system is going to change somewhat but we say that it's kind of that this is an ontological shift that we're talking mm-hmm. about as all of these transformations are happening at the same time. We argue that it only makes sense to look at these transformations of political, environmental, of economic uh, as one, because only tr- because then, then only do they become kind of understandable. Otherwise, we're going to make kind of fake predictions of, of what happens if we just look at one, uh, one sector. And by ontological... It's a kind of a heavy word, but it, it, it just means that the whole understanding of what humans are will change. So that means that, you know, for example, in, in the Industrial Revolution, the idea of a worker was introduced. Probably somewhere around 100 years ago, the idea of a child and childhood was introduced. So, so these type of changes through which people can understand their role and activities in the, in, in, in the world in a different way are ontological changes. So 
the idea of what it is to be a what uh, be a human and be a you know kind of a good human is likely to change and the change is likely to you know have already started so this is what we mean by ontological so it's not just the technocratic thing that is going on here yeah so for people who aren't invited and given that we're just at year one of a 10-year process I mean, what's what are you thinking is the process of outreach from untitled we think that that happens a lot through the experiments so we want to start like we wanted to start really kind of small because it's kind of we think that it's possible to extend. So we wanted to have something that is as diverse in terms of geography and, and in other ways that it can extend to become something that has got, got global uh, importance. However, we think that it's the experiments that make the future kind of livable, if you like, or sort of that you can live it and experience it. So it's it's the idea is that we'll we can imagine and then we can experiment, but the experiments are not like kind of experiential scenarios with kind of really nice visuals, but they are out of something that you can go and, okay, would I want to live in that way in the future? For example, you can join a housing association and see that, okay, would this way of living be something that uh, that I could take on uh, in, in the future? So that is the kind of outreach mechanism. So it's not communications, but it's kind of collaborative experimentation in in different ways of living and i would imagine there'd be no reason why you in later years you couldn't make the experiments on how we propagate yep yep precisely sounds fascinating sounds certainly one of the more interesting and uh certainly creative foresight projects you certainly need lots of creative and imaginative foresight processes. So I wish you well in that. Thank you. Thank you so much. On behalf of the FuturePod community, I'd like to thank you for taking some time out to talk about yourself and your work. Thank you. Thank you. It's been such an honour to be uh, invited to this uh, great podcast and to be included in the people who these questions are being asked from. And, and it's nice to now also listen to this and think that, you know, we are all in kind of a dialogue <laughs> with each other. It's the same set of questions uh, to be asked. So thank you very much for having me. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.